So we have a couple of exciting things before I get jump into Acts. Um, one exciting thing, or actually a couple things, uh, Ashley Boutte and also Riley Wesson will be joining our team for the foreseeable future. So that's really exciting. Um, and then in other news, Caleb had a little thing happen on last weekend, and uh, he got engaged, so congratulations to him. She did say yes, right? Okay. I'm glad, because otherwise it would be embarrassing if I said that. Um, and then Becca had a baby, like, a while back now, so that's really awesome. So, yeah. Um, all right, guys, so we're going to be uh, in the book of Acts. So turn to Acts chapter 5 if you have either a phone app will work, obviously. And uh, this is a long chapter. I'm not going to go through the entire thing because it's too long, but we're going to cover as much as we can. And this is um, a crazy story in the book of Acts. So as we jump back into the book of Acts, it's really important for um, you guys to see how the stories all tie together. So last week, Megan shared on Acts chapter 4, and she talked about how Peter preached this sermon and all these people became believers. And at the end of chapter 4, everyone is selling their stuff and they're giving their money to the poor. So I think what you, uh, there's this guy named Barnabas at the end of chapter 4 who sells a piece of land and he goes and gives money to the apostles so they can then go serve the poor. So what you see in, in all throughout the book of Acts is um, that people begin to understand that our relationship to Jesus changes our relationship to our possessions. And you see that all through uh, different chapters in this book. And you see it with Barnabas. I mean, just imagine, I mean, land's always been valuable. It still is today. But someone who um, is so selfless because they come to know Jesus, that they're willing to go sell something that they have, take the money, and then go give it to the apostles so the apostles can give it to the poor. And uh, so that happens a lot throughout this book. And uh, But then... I want you to see how end of four ties into chapter five because there's this contrast. You can't think of these stories as being separated because they're not. At the beginning of chapter five, there's this couple named Ananias and Sapphira who want to appear generous like Barnabas was without having to be generous like Barnabas was. So we're going to look at Acts chapter five, uh, first few verses here. Here's what it says. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So let's just recap what happened. It's kind of a confusing story. This couple sells a piece of property. They give part of the money to the apostles to help the poor. But then Peter somehow knows the motives of their heart, and he calls them out for lying about what they've done here. And so this guy is struck dead on the spot. And you might say, well, wasn't this guy being generous when he did this act? I mean, that sounds pretty generous to sell some land and, and just give some of the money, not all, but some. That's a generous act, isn't it? So what's the crime? What did he do that was wrong? 
You see, he wasn't, this guy wasn't required to give any or all of the money to the, to the poor. So why, why these great consequences for what this man did? Well, you see, he was trying to make everyone believe that he was giving all of it while holding some back for himself. And so this is really a lie. This is hypocrisy. This is trying to look better than you really are in front of everyone. And uh, he's doing this so that others will think highly of him. It's the same thing you and I do. If we try to look better in front of people than we really are, that's hypocrisy. It's putting on a mask, a facade. So this guy is, he's trying to gain friends by being fake. And so I think about us, if we're trying to gain, gain friends by being fake, then uh, the friendships that we gain are going to be as fake as we are. Uh, being fake only gains you fake friends. And so our relationships are only as real as we are. And so they've got, a relationship has to be based on truth. And if it's not, it's, it's not really a true friendship or relationship. But this still seems like an overreaction, doesn't it? I mean, if you read that story and you don't have some kind of gut reaction that says, what? Like, how, how, how is this just? If you don't have something in you that, that kind of feels that way, then I'm not sure, I'm not sure that you're really uh, awake right now. But this seems like an overreaction when you look at the surface of it. I mean, anyone here ever lied or been hypocritical that's probably all of us at some point so what if God just struck you dead right on the spot for that I mean how would you feel of course you wouldn't feel because you'd be dead but but I mean seriously that would you, you would think to yourself like really that's the consequence for being hypocritical or telling a lie so why is God why does God do this well I want you to see the plot thickens a little bit so look at verse 7 so now his, this man's wife comes in. She doesn't know what happened. It says, after an interval, about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much, whatever so much is. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. Immediately, she fell down at his feet. And breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So three hours later, this man's wife comes in, doesn't know what happened. She comes in. She asked, Peter asked her how much they sold the land for. Then she lies, and then she dies too. Now, this is crazy. So this story is, is a shocking story. Whether you've been a Christian for a while or whether you're a new believer, um, we can't sugarcoat this story. This is not one of those easy stories to dive into in the Bible. And so what is this really about? Why this reaction to this sin? What we see, I think, here in Acts is that God takes drastic action um, to protect the witness of the church. Because the church is in its infancy. It's in the infant stages of its existence. I think what's happening is that God sees um, hypocrisy is always a big deal, but for some reason in the, in the infancy of the church, God saw it as such a big deal and did not want to hamper the witness of the church. And so he takes drastic action in this situation to, um, to get hypocrisy out of this, this infant community. 
It's just like when I think of a parent, like when a parent, a parent takes more drastic action when they have an infant sometimes, right? Because there's, they're young, they're vulnerable, they're, um, they can get themselves in trouble more easily. They're not as resilient as you are at your age. And so I think of that in terms of the church. The church is in its infant stage. And so for some reason in this one instance, God takes drastic action with this couple and says, we will not have hypocrisy in this community. And, and he, he takes this couple um, out of the community through death. And it's just this really crazy story. When you think about what unbelievers, what, what do unbelievers often say when they see corruption in the church? They say, they call us hypocrites. They say, you know, see, you can't believe what they say. Look at how they live. Look at how their life is compromised. Look how their life is corrupt. And so um, it has this effect on how people view the Christian faith. So just, just like hypocrisy led to their death, hypocrisy also kills community. And I think we see that. Here's some other things we learn, I think, in this, uh, in this story. I think we, you and I, don't always understand the gravity of our sin. I think we miss that. We just don't, we just don't think that our sin is all that bad, right? So we read this story wondering how God could bring such a harsh punishment for something that we might call a white lie, a little white lie. But the real question is, why has God allowed you and me to live? That's the real question. Like, we can look at the story and say, man, God, like, how could you be so harsh with this couple? But if you turn around, you really could ask the question, but God, why have you been so gracious with me? Right? There's plenty of times that God could have easily done what he did with this couple to me or to you and been perfectly justified. That's the reality. Because you and I deserve what they got. It's easy to read this and think, man, God just seems so harsh and judgmental but to do this. But it really, this story really highlights his grace. I want you to see sometimes how we read a story that looks very judgmental from God. But on the flip side of that, it really highlights how gracious he has been with each one of us. You understand that? It really highlights his grace. How often he's given you and I chance after chance after chance because we don't really understand the gravity of our own sin. I like what this one writer says. It's kind of a long quote. I'll read it anyway. When we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. We may dislike, we may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by grace. So I think you and I, we can't understand his amazing grace until we grasp the gravity of our sin. The second thing I think we see in the story is that dishonesty leads to disunity. You know, we talk a lot about community here at TBC and especially with, with you as our students God wants us in honest relationships. And if people are not honest with each other, then community can't happen. Fellowship can't happen. Your friendships, any kind of relationship that you're in, if there isn't truth at the center of that relationship, 
It's not really a relationship. It's not going to last. It's not going to withstand the test of time. But whenever I've seen community break down, it often goes back to someone telling lies or someone being, not being honest with someone else. And it always breaks down. So Satan, Satan wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy community. And so whenever you and I lie, we play, we play into his hands. In verse 3, Luke connects lying with Satan. He makes it very clear. He connects lying and hypocrisy with Satan. And he's that strong about it. Back in uh, John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. I think we forget that every time, this is where I think we as believers, we really struggle because we don't see lying as that big of a deal. We don't see living a lie as that big of a deal. I can be this kind of person in this group of people, but it doesn't really matter if I'm somebody else somewhere else. And that's really living a lie. That's living hypocritically. And that always undermines community and always destroys fellowship and always leads to disunity. So I think it's a much bigger deal than we think it is. I think many of us see it as no big deal, but it really destroys the church. This other guy, John Stott, says, We have now seen that if the devil's first tactic was to destroy the church by force from without, his second was to destroy it by falsehood from within. So I don't think we realize how much damage we do whenever we, are, we, we, we commit to falsehood. We damage the church. We damage the reputation of Jesus. Um, when we lie, so we see those two principles, I think. We see the gravity of our sin. We also see the dishonesty leads to disunity. And then I'm going to summarize real quick a few, a few verses here. So if you look at verses 12 to 16, we see that God uses the apostles to bring healing to people. And then what happens in the story is that this, the high priest... And this group called the Sadducees, they arrest the apostles, and they put them in jail. Uh, why? Because they're healing people. You know, because you put people in jail for healing people. That's what you do back then, right? And in the middle of the night, this angel appears and then sets them free and tells them to go stand in the temple and share their faith. And so God doesn't set them free from jail so they can run away. He sets them free to go share the gospel again. So understand that. He says, you're going to be set free, but not to go run away and go hide. You're going to go be set free so you can go share the gospel again in the temple courts, which would probably be a dangerous thing to do at that time anyway. Then there's uh, the Jewish high priest and his men tell them to stop preaching about Jesus. And then Peter speaks up and he says, we have to obey God rather than men. These men, they get angry and they want to kill them. But there's this guy named uh, Gamaliel who steps in and he says, he tells everyone else, he says, listen, let's back off these guys. If these men are not from God, then their movement's going to die out. But if they are from God, then we don't want to be found opposing God. And then look what happens in uh, verse, end of verse 39. It says this. So they took his advice, meaning that guy, Gamaliel. They said, they're going to back off. And when, they had called, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So they, don't, they decide not to kill him, but they just decide to give him a good beating. And then they let him go. That's what they decide to do. But then look at the apostles' reaction. 
they, they rejoice. Even though they're beaten by these men, they, they rejoice in spite of their circumstances. They considered it an honor to, be, to suffer for his name. And they didn't let suffering keep them from sharing the gospel. They kept sharing. They kept sharing. Over the next 300 years, there'd be many Roman emperors that would try to stamp out Christianity. And one after another after another was trying to stamp out Christianity throughout in that part of the world. There's a, one of the church fathers, this guy named Tertullian, he said this. He says, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. So in other words, the seed of the church is the blood of Christians. So I want to ask you a couple questions as we close out. Do you consider it an honor to suffer for his name? I think in the world that we live in right now, 2020 U.S., if we suffer for his name in our, quote, unquote, free country, many Christians just throw a fit, don't we? We throw a fit and we're, we want to claim our rights. We want to, and listen, I'm all for religious freedom. I'm in favor of it. I want that. It's what I desire. But if we don't have it, I, th I think so many of us, me included, we just want to throw a fit about it, and we don't do what these men did, and that is count it worthy to suffer for his name or find honor in that. We don't see it that way, right? At the beginning of the story, we see a couple who puts their security above the gospel, but then at the end, we see disciples who put the gospel above their own security. So I want you to see how all this ties together. At the beginning of the story, we see a couple who put their own security above the gospel. At the end, you see these disciples, these apostles, that put the gospel above their own security, and they take risks for the gospel. And then last question for you, in what areas of your life are you tempted to compromise, live a double, live a double life, or live out a lie? We all have those pressure points, those places that we we're tempted to live this double life or make ourselves look better than we really are in front of other believers or even other non-believers. And we feel this pressure, the same kind of pressure that they felt um, back then. So we're going to go to um, uh, some breakouts. And here's how we're going to do